My name is Brian Wall Perkins and all I'm doing is just controlling the speakers. So we're here to celebrate and discuss the publication of this book and the first thing I have to say is that very sadly John Paul Gabriel can't be with us. His father's seriously ill in California and he's done absolutely the right thing and gone to California. So we just have three speakers, Phil Booth, Julia Bray and Christian himself. And the format is that Phil's going to talk first, Julia's then going to talk, Christian's going to talk, then I hope somebody in the audience has a burning issue or question that they want to raise, so we will then have a bit of a discussion, if that is the audience behaves itself and does ask your question, if it doesn't that's not a big disaster because then we will break immediately and have a celebratory drink. Which is so, why you're all here. Because this is a, the, the aim of this of this evening is to have a discussion, but also, crucially, a celebration of the publication. So I will pass straight over to Phil. Then I won't introduce people separately. I'll just get them to speak in turn. Thank, Thank you, Brian. My task is twofold. I want to, first of all, just to introduce the book and to try and describe what its uh, main sort of contours and, and arguments are. And then I'll offer a few critical reflections on it as a way of perhaps opening up questions for Christian and for Christian himself to respond to later. Just let me begin by saying that Christian has produced a remarkable book and I think an important one too. His vision stretches across the entire Islamic world from Al-Andalus to Iran. He glides comfortably between a range of ancient linguistic traditions, including both Islamic and Christian texts, most of which he has translated himself. And he has consulted and integrated a quite remarkable amount of scholarship. The bibliography in itself is something to behold. Christian offers us nothing less than the first comprehensive treatment of the phenomenon of neo-martyrdom in the first Islamic centuries. The core of the book is therefore a treatment of hagiographic texts. But this is historical writing on hagiography at its finest. Christian oscillates between close readings of these texts, setting out their context, teasing out the significance of various themes, and then turns to the wider context which produced those themes and made them meaningful. So that in the progression of the monograph, as we encounter uh, such themes as conversion, the legal status of Christians, the judicial system, the differing fates of different confessional communities, and a mass of other phenomena, and this touches on an enormous number of issues, we are treated to nothing less than a full panorama of Christian-Muslim relations across the early Islamic period. The core of the book treats 40 individual martyrs, and this number can be expanded into the hundreds if groups also included, whom Christian sorts into three types. First, uh, converts to Islam who return to Christianity, whom he calls flip-floppers. Uh, second, straight converts to Christianity from Islam. And third, Christian blasphemers. The first part of the book, chapters 1 to 3, treats each of these types in turn. As we progress through these chapters, Christian presents us with a world which at once seems disarming and uh, unfamiliar. In the introduction to the book, he distinguishes between two approaches to Christian-Muslim relations in this period. The conflictual or lacrimose model, which emphasises the commitment of Muslims to the eradication of non-Muslim communities, and the peaceful or apologetic model, which instead de-emphasises the legal, social and fiscal restrictions placed on Christians, which celebrates the self-determination of non-Muslim communities, and which elevates moments of collaboration and exchange, for example, 
in the refined culture of the Abbasid court at Baghdad. Now, this latter model, the apologetic model, now predominates, I think, in scholarship. It is very much the drive, for example, of Sidney Griffith's Church in the Shadow of the Mosque. And recent publications have encouraged us to think of a world in which the articulation of strict confessional and cultural boundaries belonged to the world of religious elites, but not to the fluid, inconsistent and pluralistic world, uh, the world of everyday life, which lay beyond them. Christian martyrs under Islam, however, begs us not to neglect the simultaneous existence of the conflictual model. On the one hand, Christian sees in the perceived upturn of state violence in the 8th and 9th centuries an attempt on the part of Islamic authorities to reinforce the fracturing boundaries between Christian and Islamic communities as conversion advanced and as old distinctions of the Umayyad period between conqueror and conquered, soldier and civilian, etc., began to break down. Although it is notable that, as Christian often points out himself, that Islamic texts do not, in fact, memorialise the killing of apostates come martyrs. But on the other, he also points to, well, suggests a distinct counterculture amongst Christians, an otherwise invisible substratum, to use his own words, of Christians to whom elite critiques of Islam and Islamization trickled down, another phrase he used, trickled down, who recognised in the conflicts of the martyrs similar dilemmas to their own, and who resisted the more accommodating instincts of some or most of their co-religionists. The book uh, disavows the notion of a general or systematic persecution of Christians, but it nevertheless suggests that the martyrs were, to use Christian's words, the exposed tip of a vast iceberg of potential social unrest. A spectrum of insubordinate behaviour, again, uh, to use his words, which Muslim authorities policed through the violent punishment of those rare provocateurs who existed at one end uh, of that spectrum. So this is a sort of rough summary of the argument. Now, the most controversial part of the book, I think, and where uh, discussion will fall, most obviously, is its method. So one obvious way of reading such texts is to see uh, these uh, martyrologies, is to see them as the products of Christian elites, whether clerical or monastic, involved in the task of boundary building, of celebrating steadfastness in faith against a background of slow, uh, sometimes ambiguous, but nevertheless certain Islamization amongst the wider population, irrespective of their basis in actual Christian deaths. And actually this is often how a Christian treats them himself. But rather than stop there, he is also resistant to attempt to dismiss the evidence which such texts contain as a simple product of febrile Christian imaginations or of literary convention, and instead advocates in his introduction what he calls a critical positivism, uh, steering a path between excessive literalism on the one side in interpreting the texts and excessive scepticism on the other. Christian instead argues that the repetition of motifs between different texts is in part because textual models recreated themselves in real life. I think this is what he, he suggests in the introduction. Perhaps he can correct me. He also suggests that hagiographic lives, in order to be successful had to be familiar and comprehensible. And he accepts the basic historicity of narratives of martyrdom on the basis of their being, if not factual, then at least plausible. To determine this plausibility, Christian both explores formal questions, such as the probable date of composition of different texts, which in fact is often uncertain, 
and the date of the extant manuscripts, uh, some of which are centuries later than the events described, and then sets the witness of his hagiographies against a wider pool of evidence drawn from chronicles, uh, legal texts, etc. For example, for the existence of crucifixion or of burning as genuine judicial punishments in Islamic law. This is the focus of his chapter 4. So the first three chapters are on these three types of martyr. The chapter 4 is on how martyrs are killed. This rich contextualisation is one of the great joys and uh, indeed inspirations of the book, and much of it I find compelling, but it does create some tensions. There exists, of course, between the established poles of the plausible and the fictional a whole range of further possibilities which perhaps deserve more attention. For example, the existence of a plausible fiction or the interpenetration of now indistinguishable historical and fictional elements. And one result of using these criteria, it seems to me, is to include much more than it is to exclude. That is, I would want to press Christian on which texts did not make the cut on his plausibility criterion and on what possibilities remain on his model for identifying texts with little or no basis in an actual life or event. Now, Christian is, of course, highly conscious of these problems, and the book is remarkably open and self-reflexive in walking the reader through the nature and limitations of its uh, method at all stages. This is one of its great virtues. But when in chapter 5 we turn to the texts as literature, and Christian points to the existence of certain repetitive motifs within his texts, for example, the presence of the unrepentant apostate as evidence for the ideological preoccupations of the authors of these texts, who he thinks in this case are principally monks. We are forced to wonder why other recurrent motifs, for example, the neighbour who denounces the apostate, are earlier treated in a quite different way as evidence for the role of local communities in policing legal and religious boundaries. I think Christian might answer this uh, criticism by saying that his text can be both things at once. But the attempt to read the text as both literature and as history simultaneously, and I should be said that I think this is the far braver thing to do intellectually and the more challenging thing than simply reducing the text to ideological constructs. But I think this attempt to walk this interpretive tightrope is not always comfortable. Now, the book makes so many original arguments and engages with so many historiographical debates that it's difficult for me to do any sort of justice to it in a short space of time. But one striking thing which emerges in the fifth chapter is the strong association of martyrological literature with the Melkites and with Melkite monasteries, and not with the Copts, the West Syrians, or the East Syrians, which seem to produce as communities very few or no martyrs. Now, Christian offers several reasons for why the Melkites might have produced both more martyrs and more martyrological literature. For example, the greater struggle to come to terms with their changed position in society as a favoured community under the Byzantines to one of many confessional communities under Islam. Their greater exposure to the suspicion of authorities as a fifth column for the Roman state, as had been the fate of the Church of the East under the Sasanians. The numerical dominance and urban location of the Melkites in Syro-Palestine, and the more international nature of the Melkite church, which perhaps introduced less accommodating elements from outside of the caliphate, from Byzantium, for example. In respect of the international networks of the Melkite church, the book points to the diffusion of texts from the Melkite heartlands to, for example, Constantinople and Georgia, and some of Christian's texts 
are only known because copied or translated in manuscripts produced in those regions. So the question arises of the extent to which we should differentiate the texts according to their patterns of transmission and consider in more depth whether some were produced or even rewritten for Chalcedonian regions where Muslims were either absent or far less populous and where the criteria for acceptance and success of a text might have been quite different. I will make one final point just to open up some questions. The title of the book uses the words martyr, Christian and Muslim and these are employed as categories throughout. But one wonders how our impressions might change if we substituted these. What would the picture be like if we more vigorously distinguished Christian martyr from Muslim apostate, for example? Why does the figure of the apostate dominate the literature, in particular in the East, where Christian blasphemers, which occur in Al-Andalus, seem few and far between? Are such persons best perceived as disruptive Christians, as Christian would have it? Furthermore, how might things appear if instead of or alongside Christian versus Muslim, we approach both the text and their context through the lens of civilian versus official or criminal versus judge? Or if we substituted Zoroastrian or Jewish for Christian? And did religious categories structure the worlds and identities of the inhabitants of the medieval Middle East as much as the texts of religious elites, both Christian and Islamic, would like us to suppose? So this is one of the fundamental questions of the entire book. So these are just a few of the questions which came to me as I read, but this is a book which inspires a whole host of thoughts and responses across a whole range of different issues. It is a remarkable feat of scholarship, and it seems to me that its content is as much expressed in its subtitle, The Making of the Muslim World, as it is in its title, Christian Martyrs Under Islam. Most importantly, I think it provides what every teacher and every student of this period craves, a vision of the medieval Middle East which complicates existing orthodoxies and which challenges us to discuss and to reformulate the models with which we work. Thank you. I will hand over to Julia. I wonder if perhaps you would prefer to respond at this stage, or do you want a whole load of questions to, to deal with at once? One martyrdom or two martyrdoms? <laughs> <laughs> uh, wh why don't you speak, Julia? Because okay. I suspect that some of your comments may touch on those that Phil also made, and then I can gather them up together and, and say my piece, and then we can move okay. on to questions. And... Well, I have some general points, and I have some particular points and my general points. Really one general question which is that in our current approaches to early Islam as late antiquity there's necessarily a lot of philology and in some ways justifiably what we find in your book an empirical approach. That's to say that even if your book does frame and respond to an argument, it also avoids generalizations or theories about types of society or types of social or historical process. It doesn't really have a grand thesis. So given that you're using a small morsel of textual sources to shed light on a vast process whose modern definition and understanding have been very much shaped by ideology, as you say in your book, my general question is, what does step-by-step -step empiricism achieve 
in trying to modify the kind of sloppily, unselfconsciously ideological picture that can perfectly well emerge from a philological approach. Does one have to be perhaps a bit more explicit? Eclectic empiricism is helpful and open-ended. It presents itself, and I think this is above all what your book does, as affording stepping stones that can be used to move from the fragmentary and the partial to a wider picture. And I think that that is where I have particular questions in the case of your topic. So what you're doing in a way is subaltern history, and there are lots of different subalterns in this book. And there are subalterns of subalterns. So your your Christian martyrs are a very small minority of a population which was not itself a minority, but you show how it gradually came to think of itself as a minority, or as at least as mattering less, or having less control of itself than others did. And obviously within that minority, there are women. They are the minority within the minority. And you mention some. But there is an awful lot that I would like to know about them, and I would like to know whether the sources that you've used can tell us these things. For example, how were they executed? Were they executed in the same way as men? Are all your women real women, or are some of them copy editors' phantoms? When the uh, passage in which you talk about offering people the chance to repent I noticed that in that passage, he or she was used, and this reminded me vividly of my own recent encounter with a copy editor who tried to make everything inclusive. Sometimes the sources are not inclusive, and copy editors give the impression that they are. So I wondered if that was an example of it. You also talked about the different ways in which Christians in different areas were exposed to pressures which might make them more likely to be defiant or more likely to be compliant. And you talked about aspects of their public life as much as their social life. Now, in the case of women martyrs, they don't have that sort of public life. So can we apply the same sorts of explanations to the women as to the men? I think it matters very much whether we do or not. I also would pick up on some of the points that Phil has made about the kinds of texts and the way that you approach them. If taking martyrdom as a point on a fairly broad spectrum, we look at other texts in that spectrum, we see that people who recant or people who are able to get away with it, people whose conversion is rather fuzzy and people who manage to be survivors, their stories, when they are told from whichever side, have a great many themes that are exchanged across doctrinal and religious divides. And you noted that, I think, in the case of Sufi martyrs. And by widening the picture of the thematics of the whole process, whatever stage of it we focus on, I think one would constitute a pretty large body of material that would go some way to countering the fact that there aren't all that many actual martyrs. And to see martyrdom within a much broader spectrum of how people face up to coercion or bring coercion on themselves. That would be interesting, Mm. and it would make a wider, you know, two stepping stones instead of one, I think. Of course, it has been for a long time a sort of pet aspiration of mine to build a motif index 
that would read across literature and historical sources, division of them into one or the other is a bit arbitrary in accordance with our own needs, but that would throw into relief the questions that Phil has asked and perhaps make them more tractable, since there would then be a large body of material that would not have been pre-selected by one author, and it would be interesting to see where that would lead. So I think I've said it for women, and I think I've said it for literature, and I think I've probably said enough. Okay. First, my thanks go to Phil and Julia for generously consenting to read this book. Having a book dropped on you in the middle of Michaelmas term is not easy. So I'm extremely grateful to them and also grateful to John Paul, who, although not here, certainly read the book and has provided me with some of his feedback. I also want to begin by thanking the hosts of this event. First and foremost, the Middle East Center, Professor Eugene Rogan, also of the Faculty of Oriental Studies, uh, kindly offered to host this event at precisely the same time that Brian floated the idea of doing a book launch with the Oxford Center for Late Antiquity. So for those of you who know the map of Oxford academic life, you know that these are two institutions that don't necessarily have a whole lot to do with each other. I think this may be the first joint event between the Oxford Center for Late Antiquity and the Oxford Middle East Center, but I certainly hope that it's not the last. And finally, I want to recognize my own faculty, Oriental Studies, which has served as a co-sponsor, and also Kaya of the Middle East Center, who is floating around, who has been instrumental in putting this on. Thank you all very much. I thought what I would do by way of my own comments is tell you a little bit about the genesis of this book, where it began, and then I want to address a few of the questions that Phil and Julia have raised in their comments. As is often the case with first books, this goes back to a doctoral thesis, which was completed several years ago at Princeton University under the supervision of Peter Brown and Michael Cook. It goes back even further in a sense. I, I don't think anyone wanders into a topic, especially a topic that one dwells on for as long as I have, in this case seven or eight years, uh, without some personal interest or personal investment. Uh, and my own curiosity about the early history of Muslim-Christian interactions goes back to the formative years that I spent traveling and living in the Middle East, in particular in Damascus, and then later in Beirut. This was mostly for Arabic language study, but as all of you know, it has been an interesting corner of the world over the past few years, and it was no less interesting before the onset of what we used to call the Arab Spring. Now it seems very much like an Arab winter. And essentially by dumb luck, I found myself living in predominantly Christian neighborhoods. In Damascus, I lived in a neighborhood known as Babtuma, named for the Gate of St. Thomas, on the doorstep of the church that was associated with Ananias, the leader of the Christian community who, according to the Acts of the Apostles, greeted St. Paul after his eventful experience on the Damascus Road. And essentially for equal reasons of dumb luck, upon arriving in Beirut, I found myself living in a neighborhood that was filled with Syrian Orthodox as well as Syrian Catholics, many of them refugees from the violence of 1915 that also engulfed the Armenians at the end of Ottoman history. And I mention these to contextualize the project not because I set out to write a history of these modern communities, but to be surrounded by a vision of modern Middle Eastern life which did not take for granted that the region, this Arabic-speaking region, was necessarily a Muslim region, set my mind on fire. In other words, it was an opportunity to think about how what we typically regard as the Islamic world can be something very different depending upon the perspective of the person that you ask and the vantage point from which you look at it. So by dint of the people that I came to know, Christian as well as Muslim, it must be said, I got very interested in the early history of these two communities. How did they first interact? How did the process of conversion transform what in late antiquity was, of course, a majority Christian world into the majority Muslim world that all of us know today? So those were some of the personal experiences that led me to study this topic generally and select this thesis more specifically. When it came to Christian martyrdom and the hagiographic text that we've been hearing about, this was essentially a body of evidence that had been studied piecemeal on an individual basis. 
but which had never been pooled together into a synthetic study of martyrdom itself, as well as the ways in which martyrdom can help us reflect on these big, big processes, the process of Islamization, the process of religious change, the process of cultural and linguistic change. So it seemed like the moment was ripe for pooling together uh, nearly a hundred years of specialized research on individual texts, individual episodes, into a much broader tapestry that could help me reflect on much wider themes. Now, with respect to some of the questions that have been raised by Phil and Julia, there's a lot to think about, and these will be with me for a long time to come. If I manage to write a follow-up to this book, they'll begin with some of the things that Phil and Julia have raised. But some of these issues have been with me for as long as I have been presenting my research. And so it's nice, now that it is out in the open and we can celebrate its publication, uh, to revisit some of these thorny issues that lie at the heart of the source material and, as a result, at the heart of my argument as a historian. The first of these, as Phil rightly noted, is the controversial method of the book. That is to say that we can derive historical insights from a body of texts that many historians would regard as essentially untrustworthy. That is to say, saints' lives. There is a strong view in academic settings uh, that saints' lives are essentially collections of pious mumbo-jumbo. These are stories of miracles uh, that don't necessarily tell us a great deal about how history happened, but how pious people in later years wish to remember it. I see the great virtues in this, a certain sensitivity to the role of hagiography as literature, a sensitivity to motif, the ways in which events in the past are conditioned and represented according to certain conventions. But as I argue in the book, it's also possible to deploy these literary strategies, literary analysis, alongside a consideration of what the facts reveal about history, about what may have happened. That may sound historically naive, but I viewed that as being at the heart of my project from the get-go. And here I want to emphasize a point that Phil very charitably highlighted, that the claim in the book is not necessarily that these events happened. In most instances, these martyrdom episodes cannot be corroborated using outside sources. For from the perspective of a strict empiricism, you have to raise your hands, say, God knows best. But the argument in the book is that these episodes, which are recorded in literary form and hagiographic texts, are plausible. And I try to essentially test their plausibility by constantly contextualizing them with evidence called from a range of other sources. Those sources come in the form of Christian texts, yes, but significantly also Islamic literature. And far from every text under consideration being a factual account or a plausible account, I think that there are plenty of them which are indeed late, which are indeed dubious, and I try to recognize them as such. But my view, as I state in the book, is that a great many of these strike me as extremely plausible. And far from, say, succumbing to a reflexive impulse of skepticism, dismissing these texts purely on the basis of the genre to which they belong, I felt it was incumbent upon me as a historian to try to wring as much possible historical information out of them alongside engaging in literary analysis. And so the approach that you see in the book is very much an attempt to do both. You'll be the judge of whether I walk this tightrope successfully, but I've tried to be, from the point of view of method, bilingual, so to speak, to nod in both directions without discounting the possibility that these sources have something real to tell us about what may have happened. As for Phil's point about could I have written a book concerning relations between Muslims and other religious communities in the Near East at the beginnings of Islam, absolutely. And in many ways, the questions that I encountered in the course of writing this book have set me on my path to a new set of research projects which have taken me away from the world of, say, Christians under Muslim rule to look at the treatment of other communities, especially in the Iranian world, such as Zoroastrians. Here, I think it's significant that although certainly many of the historical issues that I raise in the book conversion, apostasy, blasphemy, boundary maintenance, all of these issues no doubt affected these groups. The ways in which they commemorated these experiences in written form, in literary form, were very different. 
In short, one could certainly write a history of, say, Jewish conversion to Islam in the early centuries. One could certainly write a history of Zoroastrian conversion to Islam. Such things have been done. I think there's a lot of work left to be done. But what is certain is that one could not write a history of, say, Jewish martyrdom under Islam. One could not write a history of Zoroastrian martyrdom. Martyrdom in this context, when I use that term, I'm referring as much to the phenomenon of violence itself as the impulse of communities to record it in literary form. This is a particularly Christian idiom, at least in the period in which I am writing. Now, to some of Julia's points, the presence of women. Women form a minority of the martyrs in the book, but they, to my eyes, form an extremely interesting minority of the martyrs, largely for the reasons that Julia herself raises. We assume that many of these people lived lives out in the open as much as they did in private, but in a pre-modern society such as that of the early medieval caliphate, we can't take this for granted. And so in a way, I think these episodes of protest, these episodes of violence and execution help surface, help expose, help cast light on the kinds of characters who otherwise are very often not visible in our sources. And here I'm thinking of probably one of the most moving and arresting scenes from the texts that I worked on, which is a chapter of the famous Cordoba Martyrs Incident, which occurs in 850 in the capital of Umayyad, Spain, the independent emirate of Al-Andalus, where two women who were essentially crypto-Christians, who, according to the sources at least, practiced a Christian faith in private to the world, lived as Muslims, get fed up with this arrangement, feel compelled to declare their allegiances in public, and storm into a mosque and remove their veils. So this is an extremely, I think, revealing episode in which, as you rightly put it, people who are normally, whose lives are normally lost to us in the domain of the private suddenly seize the center stage very much in public. And this event is precipitated by martyrdom, is precipitated by the kinds of processes I've been describing. And lastly, Julia also raises the question of could one write, say, interreligious or pan-confessional history of martyrdom at the beginnings of Islam? Intercommunal violence is not, as I said, exclusively a feature of Muslims and Christians together, but is indeed a phenomenon that arises between different Muslim groups, between Sunnis and Shi'is, between Kharijis and other early Muslims. It's a tradition that we find in Sufism and other places. And indeed, I would just second what Julia says, that this would be a fantastic book for someone to write. I think I've lost a bit of energy when it comes to martyrdom, at least in the here and the now. Maybe I'll return to this, or I'd commend the project to an enterprising graduate student. But this is precisely the kind of research that I would say is at the next stage. It waits to be done to contextualize these sources that hopefully now we understand in, in a particular confessional context, but to look at them against the backdrop of a much more diverse world. Diverse not only in the distinctions between Muslims and non-Muslims, but diverse internally within Islam. Martyrdom is part of the ecumenical language of this world, and I think that we could gain a great deal by reading the martyrological literature of these communities together. That's all I have to say in response to this. The last point that I want to make is, since the book has come out, I've had the chance to try and publicize it in the form of essays in which I try to extrapolate what does this book have to tell us today. I think a book entitled Christian Martyrs Under Islam should provoke a host of images to all of you who follow the news in the Middle East over the past few years. This is one of those uh, strange coincidences in which the project that one selects intersects in this instance, in very melancholy ways, with events that are on television, on newspaper headlines and the rest. And of course, I'm referring to the terrible violence that has swept across many of the ancient Christian communities and indeed many of the minority communities of the Middle East over the past few years as a consequence of the civil war in Syria, the civil war in Iraq, and in particular, uh, the rise of the Islamic State. So this was an eerie experience for me to embark on a project, and frankly, within less than a year of selecting the topic, working on these texts, to see many 
eerily similar episodes popping up in the media. Here I want to emphasize that I've not written a book that seeks to explain all that's happened over the past decade or so, far from it, because my view of what's happened recently is that there are as many, say, major differences with interreligious violence in the modern day and with the medieval period as there are similarities, and one has to be sensitive to both. But more broadly, I think what has been interesting for me is to think about the ways in which the modern period, much better documented as it is, might provide us with interesting models for explaining how religious change operated across different times and places. And here, I'm thinking of the ways in which major cataclysm, cataclysm precipitated not merely by war and invasion, but cataclysm precipitated by things like drought, by famine, the rise of militant ideologies, over time was one major factor which contributed to the long-term transformation of the Middle East from a majority Christian world, at least in places like the Levant, Egypt, and North Africa, into the majority Muslim world we know today. So the ways in which periods of intense crisis, crises that rock institutions, which cause displacement, which provide social incentives for people to switch communities, how this model, which we've observed very carefully over the past few years, may help us explain how religious change occurred in other contexts and other places in the more distant past. I could talk more about that in detail, but this is a thought that's occurred to me since finishing the book and perhaps is persuasive to you and something that I'm developing um, in some writing projects right now. So I'll leave it there. I want to thank all of you for coming. I want to reiterate my thanks to the panelists, to Brian, to Eugene Rogan, to Kaya, and everyone at the Middle East Center. And I couldn't think of a better way of celebrating this book's launch than with all of you. So thank you.